Hey, I'm Phil. Thanks for checking out this message today. We're glad you're here and we would love to get connected with you and your family. So one easy way that you can do that is to text River Connect to 97000. You can also visit our website at theriverchurch.cc to learn more about us and some upcoming events. Lastly, if you would like to give to the River Church today, you can text the amount that you want to give to 84321 or you can head to our website and click the Give tab at the top of the page. Thanks again for joining us, and we hope you enjoyed today's message. Isaiah chapter number 9 in verse number 6, kind of our, our launching verse over last week, this week, and the remainder of this month. The prophet Isaiah is speaking, and he says this in verse number 6, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So hundreds of years before Jesus was born uh, in that little town of Bethlehem to the Virgin Mary, the prophet Isaiah spoke to the nation, the people of God. He was speaking at a time where there was a very wicked king named Ahaz on the throne, a king that would not listen to the counsel of God, a king that would not look for God's directions, or we would say his signs. And so God sends, God dispatches the prophet Isaiah to speak on his behalf. And he gives some really good news. He says there is going to be a gift. The gift is going to be a son. A baby is going to be born. And we look there in verse number seven, and he's going to sit upon the throne of David, and he's going to bring a peace to this earth. He's going to bring a peace that passes all understanding. He's going to bring a peace that will never come to an end. Well, if you look at Isaiah chapter number 7 and verse number 14, when Ahaz would not listen to any counsel from prophets or would not seek the Lord or heed any sort of sign from God, Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14 Isaiah delivers this message. He says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're not going to seek God, but you need to understand that God's plan is going to be unveiled. God's plan is going to unfold. And here's the sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel meaning God with us. I want you to hold your spot in Isaiah, and I want you to go to the right to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 1. Matthew chapter number 1. Verse number 18. Matthew begins with a genealogy of Jesus. And there are some incredible stories packed into those names. Verse number 18, 
Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. So a scandal breaks out. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So culturally, this was a, an agreement somewhere between our version of engagement and marriage. It was a legally binding contract. It wasn't marriage, and it wasn't as loose as what we would understand as an engagement. So it's called betrothal here. And Joseph finds out that his soon-to-be wife is pregnant. He knows it's not him. He knows there's a, a scandal here in their, their town, in their village, amongst their family. But he does not want to make a scene. He does not want Mary to be shamed. He does not want Mary on the extreme case to be executed. And so he just decides, I'm gonna, we're going to be divorced. We're going to break this betrothal, this legal agreement quietly. Verse 20. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So here's this narrative being unfolded. Joseph in this terrible spot the angel is sent to him, or excuse me, the, the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream, says, listen, I understand you're afraid. Don't be afraid. What's happening is the plan of God. And then you see Matthew add this note, verse 22, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Well, which prophet? The prophet Isaiah, verse 23, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So what are we seeing here? When we read a book, we go, oh, that's only a few pages apart. But in the, the span of time, this is hundreds and hundreds of years separated. So you have this wicked king on the throne. You have the nation being rocked. You have the nation fearing impending uh, invasion, impending destruction. That king will not seek the Lord. And so God says, listen, he won't seek a sign. He won't come to me, but I'll send a sign. And so the sign is going to be this. You look for a miraculous birth that a virgin is going to conceive and give birth to a son. And it's going to be called, his name will be called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then Isaiah continues with the sermon in Isaiah 9, 6. It says, listen, his peace is going to continue. It will continue to increase. The government will rest safely upon his shoulders. And his character or his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. His name will be called Mighty God, meaning Emmanuel, God with us. Here it is in Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, quoting the prophet Isaiah and Matthew puts the note here, Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And Joseph's legal responsibility here, he called his name Jesus. He called his name Jesus. 
Over the next few weeks, we will be very busy with family functions and work parties and shopping and all the different things that will accompany this season. But as believers, we pause each year to remember the birth of Christ. And not just the birth of Christ that a baby was born and laid in a manger and that there may or may not have been some animals around. That some shepherds received a miraculous announcement by a host of heavenly angels who showed up. They ran into Bethlehem and they saw the baby Jesus. We think roughly around two years later, the wise men came from the east and they brought gifts and they laid them at the feet of now a toddler Jesus. They laid gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Those are wonderful things to remember and wonderful stories to celebrate. But what is happening when we step back and we see this from Isaiah and we see this from the Gospel of Matthew is that God himself has become man. That God himself, we call it the incarnation, that God has put on flesh. And it is a, a miracle of miracles. It's, it's a thing that we read and we, can, we can't even wrap our minds around it. It's an idea we can just barely with all of our mental capacity scratch the surface of the God who created the universe is now laying in a manger as a baby boy. And there he is, fully man and yet fully God. There he is needing his mother to scoop him up. And yet by divine power, that baby is the one holding the universe together. It's, it's a miraculous thing. You just look into that manger and you just go, how? And it is a miracle beyond human understanding. And it's what Isaiah is declaring to a, a shaken nation. He's saying, I'll give you a sign. A baby is going to be born to a virgin. And it's not just going to be like a baby, like every other child born. This is going to be a miraculous conception because it's God invading the world in the form of a child. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor. He'll be the wisdom of God descended from heaven. And not only that, he will be mighty God. And so that baby was raised, lived in obscurity. I, I can't wait to get to heaven and, and hear about some of the, um, the childhood stories of Jesus. My favorite, and I've shared before, is to just think about what would it be like to be Jesus' sibling. Right, we know from the Gospels that Mary and Joseph, after Jesus, had other children. And so they had boys and they had girls and the oldest child was Jesus. Now, it's not a fair thing for a parent to ever say, hey, I wish you would be more like your brother. <laughs> but in this case, it's the truth. So man, I think about some of those kids like, I wish you'd be more like Jesus. I know, I'm sick of hearing it. <laughs> Mr. Perfect. And he's Perfect. You know, Jesus never did that. I know, Mom. I've, I've heard this my whole life. So sibling rivalry had to be fascinating. We know from the Gospel of John later on that the brothers did not believe Jesus was the Son of God until after the resurrection. So there had to be some fascinating family dynamics there. So I can't wait to get to heaven to hear some of those stories. What was it like in the home with Jesus? 
But that baby would grow. Luke 2.52 says he would grow in wisdom and stature and favor with God and favor with man. He would live a, for all intents and purposes, a normal life. His father was a carpenter. Sometimes I think we like to glamorize and say that, you know, he was a finished carpenter. He was making fabulous furniture and all those different things. But probably a better understanding was to see Jesus as the town handyman. So think about the family dynamics and think about the town dynamics, the hometown of Jesus. Here he is, the handyman, and all of a sudden, he's famous. He's teaching. He's traveling around. People are following him. Parades are forming in the streets when this man arrives, and they're like, mm, he just fixed my roof last, last month. Like, I don't know, this is, this is kind of weird. He didn't seem all that, he didn't seem all, I mean, he did a good job on the roof, but he didn't seem all that exceptional when he was over the house. But this baby grows to be a man, and all of a sudden, you start to see the fulfillment, not just of the, the virgin conceiving and giving birth, but you start to see Emmanuel, God, with us. You start to see the mighty God. And so Jesus is at a wedding. A crisis happens to this young couple. These, this newlywed couple, they've run out of wine at the wedding. Mary comes to Jesus and says, Jesus, they have a crisis. Can you do something about it? Jesus speaks very respectfully to her. Jesus does a miracle. He turns massive amounts of just plain, ordinary water into the best wine these folks had ever tasted. The miracles go from there. They start to bring Jesus people who can't see. And not just people that have lost their sight later in life. These are people who have been born blind, people who have never seen. And so Jesus is touching them. Jesus is praying over them. And blind people start to see. Lame people who've never walked before, who've been born with a, a disability, their legs are healed. And they begin to not just learn to walk, but the Bible tells us stories of the mighty God, Jesus, healing them. And so they're running and leaping and dancing and jumping because they have encountered the mighty God. The blind people are seen, lame people are walking, and then Jesus' friend dies. His name was Lazarus. Lazarus was a dear friend of Jesus. He and his sisters had hosted Jesus together. Lazarus was sick, John 11 tells us. And so word is sent via Mary and Martha, the two sisters, hey, Jesus, come quickly. Our, our brother, your friend, is sick. Jesus had healed sick people. Jesus had healed lame people. Jesus had cast out evil spirits. Jesus had done all these things. Clearly, hosting Jesus had entitled Lazarus to a visit from the great physician. But Jesus delays. And Lazarus dies. Jesus and his disciples make their way to the city, little town of Bethany. And Mary and Martha, Martha comes and greets him and is upset. Lord, I, I sent word to you, and I'm paraphrasing slightly here, but Lord, I sent word to you. Why didn't you come? I, I, thought, I, I thought you loved us. I thought we were close. I thought we were good friends. I mean, we love you. We've served you, and we needed you, and you didn't show up when we needed you. 
Mary reiterates a very similar thing to Jesus, and Jesus says, take me to the tomb, and goes to the tomb. And there, John 11 records that Jesus wept, groaned in his spirit. And then Jesus, the little baby who was miraculously born into this world, the one who had grown up a normal life, burst onto the scene, began to teach some shocking things, began to confront the Pharisees. The audible voice of God had spoke several times to him. People had heard that. People had seen the Holy Spirit like a dove descend on him. The one who had made lame people walk and, and, and blind people see is now standing at a tomb and he says, roll the stone away. The sisters say, no, don't do that. He's been dead for four days. It's going to smell. That'll be embarrassing. That's, that's, that's just going to heap a, a, another dramatic event on an already terrible situation. Jesus says, roll the stone away. And Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth. And now just a few miles outside of the epicenter of Judaism in Jerusalem, a dead man walks out of the tomb. So now Jesus has the authority not just to make blind people see and lame people walk, but dead people are living again. So much so that Lazarus becomes a tourist attraction. People are coming out to Bethany going, I went to his funeral and now I'm eating lunch with him. Never done that before. The story goes from there that when the Pharisees hated Jesus so much, they said, listen, we got a problem. Jesus is a problem, but so is the dead guy walking around. We need to kill them both. The Gospels are full of the might of God. Mark chapter 4 is one of my favorite stories that I love to go to. It's Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with his disciples, these trained sailors and fishermen. And we see this in the Gospels in multiple places. We see eyewitnesses' accounts writing this down. It's not fairy tales. It's not fiction. These are guys writing it down saying, I was in the boat. And we were afraid we were going to die. The waves were coming over the sides of the boat. And Jesus is sleeping. They wake Jesus up. Jesus, do you not care that we're about to die? Jesus wakes up. And in my mind, we don't know exactly where he stood, but I see Jesus going with authority and just standing there on the bow of the boat and saying, peace, be still. And all of a sudden, this swirling storm, this storm that's all over the place, this deadly storm that they're terrified, in an instant, it is peaceful. The sea was like glass. The wind was no more. The waves stopped because Jesus, the mighty God said, peace, be still. And the disciples sat in the boat because certainly they had never seen anything like that before. And Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark, who was, we believe, writing with the assistance of Peter, Peter telling Mark the stories, they said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So all throughout the Gospels, we see the might of the Almighty God. God in the flesh. But dead people living again, lame people walking, blind people seeing, those are just a warm-up for the greatest miracle 
that has ever happened on planet Earth. See, around 33 years of age, Jesus' popularity was at its zenith. He was, he was just renowned. He couldn't go anywhere without being mobbed by people. And the religious leaders hated him for that, and so they sought for three years to find a way in to arrest Jesus quietly and to kill him. So Jesus made his way to Jerusalem, and he says to the disciples, see, we're going to Jerusalem, and I just want to let you know on the way, uh, when we get there, I'm going to be arrested by the Pharisees. Uh, They're going to try me, and then I'm going to be crucified, but don't worry, after three days I'll rise from the dead. It went in one ear and out the other ear. I don't know why. Like, were they fighting over something? Were they distracted? Like, I I don't know. So a few verses later, Jesus is like, hey, do you see the road we're on, everybody? We're heading to Jerusalem. I don't know if Jesus talked his demeaning to the disciples as I pretended there for a moment. But, um, hey, everybody, we're on the road to Jerusalem. Yes, Jesus, we are. Hey, when we get there, I'm going to be arrested by the Pharisees. They're going to lie about me. They're going to try me. They're going to crucify me. I'm going to die. Three days later, I'll rise from the dead. Oh, it's nice, Jesus. You go over here and see this house. Multiple times he's telling that. When they get to Jerusalem, Jesus is arrested, and they run away. He's tried exactly like he said he would be tried. And then as a common criminal, he is beaten, mocked, shamed, and he is taken outside of the city as a symbolic gesture of you are cursed and you you are not welcome here, you do not belong here. And he's taken out of the city and he's nailed to the most excruciating, awful form of execution humanity has ever come up with, the cross. And he's nailed to the cross. And it's there on the cross that over and over again, he is saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. One of the thieves is railing against him, mocking him. The other thief says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today you'll be with me in paradise. It wasn't like they were just sitting having a cup of coffee. Jesus has got spikes nailed through his hands, a spike through his feet. He's bleeding to death. A crown of thorns is crushed onto his head. So it took just divine, mighty power for him to raise himself up, fill his lungs with enough air that would have been already filling with blood to say to this thief, this rightfully condemned man, today you'll be with me, really what he says, in the garden of God. We'll walk in the garden of God together. That's all what's happening on the surface. The mightiness of God. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy chapter number 2. Paul says, for there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Paul says, for this, I was appointed as a preacher. So there on the cross, Jesus isn't just suffering because a mob overtook him. Jesus, the Bible says, laid down his life. He is an important word here, the propitiation, meaning the payment, the substitutionary atoning work of God is happening. God is punishing his perfect son for our sin. And it's there on the cross that he is giving what Isaiah 9, 6 talks about. 
Isaiah says, for unto us a child is born. That's the miracle. And to us a son is given. And so what does God do? God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. How did he give his son? He gave his son on the cross of Calvary. And what is Jesus doing there? Jesus is mediating a new covenant, a new promise, a new deal between two parties who are very far apart. Whenever I think about a mediator, what's true of a mediator is that a mediator has to equally represent both sides. So when I was younger, I thought about my mother-in-law. I I imagine my mother-in-law attempting to mediate between me and my wife. That's never going to happen because she's never taking my side. So that was always my go-to illustration. And I thought, now I have a new one. The other day I saw my daughter and her husband, so my son-in-law, having a little fight. That wasn't a bad fight. Made me smile just watching it. And then I thought, maybe I could mediate. Nope, not a chance. I don't care what it is. You're an idiot and she's great. Right? I can't be a mediator. I do not equally represent both sides. Not even close. Job, the Old Testament poetic story, talks about a mediator must be able to put hands on both shoulders. If you sense that a mediator is leaning too far to one side, then you won't trust the mediator. You can't be confident in the mediator's motives. So a mediator has to do what? You have one party over here who's in conflict with this party, and this party is in conflict, and a mediator has to put his hands on both shoulders, as Job says. What's happening at the cross is the mighty God. We would say the God-man, who is fully God and fully man. Fully God, we see his divinity on display. He calms storms. Blind people see, lame people walk, dead people live again. So he is clearly God. But we also see that he understands us. Hebrews says he was touched with the feeling of our infirmities. He knows loneliness, he knows betrayal. He knows hurt. He knows loss. He knows injustice. He knows hunger. He knows need. He knows sorrow. Isaiah 53 says he's a man of sorrows and he is acquainted with our grief. So there's no grief that we know that Jesus, the God-man, does not also know. But the dilemma is he... He's holy and we are sinful. And so we need, we need a mediator who can understand our temptation, who, who can understand our infirmities, but is also holy and righteous in God. And so that's the divine miracle of the incarnation of God becoming flesh. And so the prophet Isaiah says to Ahaz and the nation, okay, you won't ask for a sign, but I'll give you a sign. 
And the sign is going to blow your mind. It's going to be a a virgin conceiving and giving birth, but it's not just going to be a miraculous birth. It's going to be a divine gift. It's going to be the Son of God in the flesh. And so what is Jesus doing at the cross? He is mediating a new covenant between a holy God and sinful man. Here's what you need to understand. You and I have no hope, no standing, no possibility of going and being with God in heaven. You and I have no standing or no hope, no way to petition God for his help outside of the work of Christ on the cross. That's who is mediating a new covenant. And so when we talk about Isaiah 9, 6, we're talking about the gift that God has given us and the one who we are celebrating today, the King of kings, that joy has come into the world and that God has sent his only begotten son to pay the penalty for our sin. And then he is the wonderful counselor and he is mighty God. John chapter 1, if you'll turn there real quick. John chapter 1, Gospel of John. John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning, so at the very beginning was the word, the word is this, this Greek context that we, we won't get, all get into, but the, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Look down at verse number 14. And the word, so the controlling power, creative force of the universe That's how the Greeks would have understood that. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, I would love it if the ESV and some different translations would translate that a little bit different, meaning dwell with us, meaning lived with us, but the, the context is he tented with us. If you've ever gone camping with someone, you find out real quickly whether you like them or not. John begins his gospel by saying, in the beginning, when when the beginning began, the word was there. The word was with God, meaning face to face, and the word was God. And that word, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, meaning tented among us, knows what it's like to be human, knows what it's like to, as C.S. Lewis said, put on skin. So Jesus didn't become God. Jesus has always been God. Later on in the Gospels, Thomas, who sometimes we call Doubting Thomas, but I don't think he's Doubting Thomas. I think he's Thomas, the guy who will ask the questions no one else has the courage to ask. The resurrection happens, declaring the divine power of Jesus. The disciples find Thomas. They say, Thomas, you missed Jesus. He rose from the dead. Thomas says, whoa, whoa, whoa. I will not believe that it is truly him until I touch the wounds in his hand and his side. Eight days later, Jesus shows up in a locked room and Thomas is there and Jesus is at, Jesus essentially says, go ahead. Thomas falls before the Lord in John chapter 20, verse 28. And he says, my Lord and my God meaning my master and my God. 
declares Jesus as his master and God in the flesh. Just a few verses after that in John chapter number 21, excuse me, John chapter 20, John writes, I I wrote these things to you so that you might believe that he is the Christ and that by believing you might have life in his name. Paul celebrates the divinity of Jesus, that he is mighty God. Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says of Jesus Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, so he was face to face with God, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. So he laid aside his, not his divinity, but he laid aside divine privileges. I'm having a conversation with some friends this week, and we were just talking about some different theological things to think about God laying aside not divinity but divine privileges and putting himself in our shoes. So that's the part of the incarnation that's crazy. Like when you, when you look at your little nativity set, wherever you have that in your house, whether it's on the front lawn, whether that's in a picture, whether you have it on the mantle, whatever it is, and you look at that, that little figure of the baby in the manger, just realize that 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh and that baby laying there is the one who's holding everything together. And yet Mary had to scoop him up and wash him and feed him and change him. But the God of the universe laid aside divine privileges. He's the one who created the very concept of walking, and yet because he became fully man, he had to learn how to use his legs and walk. The wisdom of God, the wonderful counselor, had to learn how to read and write. The one who created the brain, the mind, the very concept of letters and reading and music, all of those things had to learn how to do those things because he laid aside his divine privileges. Why? So that he could come to Calvary and mediate a new covenant between a holy God and sinful humanity. That's the mighty God. And folks, that's what we're celebrating this season. Sure, Enjoy good food. I can't wait to eat pecan pie and steak. That's my order. (laughs) I look forward to giving gifts. All of those things are wonderful. But if we miss the gift that God has sent and that he, God, became flesh and dwelt among us, We've missed it all. A couple in the church, I was over their house this week, and uh, over the last few Sundays, they've been saying, hey, we have some books we want you to come get. I love books. That's my love language. And uh, these were some different Bible commentaries and so I went over there this week and went downstairs this beautiful set of these Charles Spurgeon books. And I was uh, read a sermon this morning. So I loaded up the, the box of the books and was coming upstairs and I'm sweating. I mean, I'm sweating profusely. I'm standing there with a box of books and I look over 
And he's standing there with a coat on. And she says, yeah, sorry it's so hot in here. It had to be 102 in this house, I'm telling you. So I got these books and I brought them home and I found a sermon from Charles Spurgeon in the late 1850s, early 1860s. Spurgeon was a a pastor in London and um, just prolific, a prolific writer and pastor and president of essentially a seminary. I mean, just extraordinary. I was reading his sermon on Mighty God and he, towards the end of the sermon, almost to the last paragraph, he says this, and I just want to read this quote for you. He said, My soul bears record that what has been done for me could never have been done by a mere man. And you would rise from your seats, I am sure, if it were needful, and say, yes, he that has loved me, washed me from my sins, and made me what I am, must be God. None but God could do what he has done could bear so patiently, could bless so lavishly, forgive so freely, enrich so infinitely. He is, he must be, we will crown him such, the mighty God. My prayer for you as I prayed this morning and think about you in this moment, have you crowned Jesus Lord and God of your life. Because he is God in the flesh who suffered for our sins and triumphantly rose from the dead. That is the good news. And how you respond to the good news. I pray that it is Romans 10.9. I pray that you will confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. I pray that you'll be saved. And if you are saved, we're, we're going to pray in just a moment. And then we're going to sing one of my favorite songs. I pray that you will rise from your seats. I pray that you will sing to the Lord. I pray that you will lift up holy hands to the Lord. I pray that you will shout. I pray that you will cry as we exalt the one who came and paid the penalty for our sin the mighty God, the everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace, and to know that he sits securely on the throne of heaven, securely on the throne of the universe. And he is not just distant, but he came and he understands what we go through. He's our Savior. He's our God. He's our friend. Let's pray together. Jesus, thank you for today. Thank you for coming to earth and paying for our sin. Rising from the dead, Lord, I pray that you are honored here. I pray that our hearts and minds are focused on you and not distracted by lesser things or things that are coming in the schedule later today. Lord, I pray that our hearts are locked into you. I pray in these next few moments, Lord, we would exalt you. Maybe there's someone here, Lord, that doesn't know you. I pray that you'd rescue them. I pray that they would respond to the good news in faith, Lord. I pray that they would repent of their sin and believe in you. Please save people in this room today, Lord. Please save those who may be watching online. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's rise.